Thank you, Bob. How are we doing this morning? Um, have to, uh, some of you, a lot of you don't know what this is, um, but some of you are newer to our church. Welcome to the Box of Problems. Who doesn't have one of these, right? So I uh, wanted to reintroduce this. Um, as we've seen this over the years, this box is getting a little taggered, but, um, you know, that's perfect because our Box of Problems are very tattered, aren't they? As we've gone through Lamentations, we've, we've kind of uh, looked at that idea of problems, stresses, mournings, griefs, right, losses, but especially because in, in the context we're looking at, it's, it's ramifications of sin, right? So when we look at our, our, our lives, and, and we have some commonalities, but there's also differences, but we all kind of have this category of, of when you look in your box of problems right now, there is a few different categories. There's one, there's a category of ramifications of your own sin, right? We've blown it. We've said something, we've hurt somebody, we've not done something we should have, and, and the ripple effects of that can really fill our life up, right? The second category is, uh, we all experience is the, the, um, the, the category of those who have sinned, and we've been sort of the recipient of that. Right? Somebody's hurt us and the problems that can cause. Or the, the sin of our culture, the sin of just in general, as we've seen in Lamentations, the people group, right? There's ramifications for that. And, and, it, and it can pile up. And then lastly, is, as we look into our box of problems, there's, there's griefs formed by just living in a broken world. Right? Just living in a broken world that's broken by sin. And, and, and there's, so there's disease and there's death and there's pandemics. And there's all this stuff that we experience because of that. And it adds up, and, it, and, it, and sometimes it just gets so heavy. And, and we've talked about how there's a couple of ways we, we tend to approach it. We've seen that in Lamentations, where one of the ways is all we do, is all we see, you guys rec- kind of recognize that in your own life? All we see is the problems, right? The pit that we saw in Lamentations 3. It's just all I see is the problems. I can't look beyond it, and I begin to lose hope, right? And then the, the second one, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we had the garbage and uh, put it over there and said, hey, I'll just leave that there. It won't stink, right? We can do that with, with the box of problems is just sort of pretend uh, I, I don't see it, right? I don't have any problems. I'm good. I'm good, right? And we try to hide it and uh, no, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, no, I'm good, right? And we can just start to weigh us down and it starts to, to uh, really sort of seep in to places of our life. Can somebody help me up? I don't know if I can. Uh, I'm not that old yet. And so that's kind of how, but what, what Lamentations is, has been given us a tool to cry out to God and face these uh, consequences of sin, of us, of others, of our, of our people, and, and, and our nation, and our culture, right? And so we're going to see in Lamentations 4 that in the wrath on sin, and there is wrath, right, from God, holy, perfect, right wrath, but in the midst of it, there's hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you. You know this tattered box represents each soul in this room. And you know what's in our box. You know what stresses. You know what griefs. You know what problems. Lord, we've sinned. Others have sinned against us. We're a part of a people that has sinned. And we deserve what you judge us in. But Lord, today I ask that you will show us where the hope is and where it's found. Lord, I pray that you would not leave any of us unchanged, O Holy Spirit, today. 
that we would leave these doors today to go about our lives changed at least one degree towards your glory. And God, you know what we need. So we leave ourselves in your hands. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, as we continue this series, we've been in Lamentations. I think most of you know that uh, by now. And, and every week's been a different Lamentation. So it, uh, we'll put it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, it's Lamentations chapter 4, right? Uh, makes it easy. And, and so remember as we look at this that the context of it is some you know, time right kind of following 587 B.C. Judah, Jerusalem, they've, they've been warned for generations, and finally God has judged them using the superpower Babylon and their king Nebuchadnezzar. And they've come and they've laid siege for 18 months. There's been starvation. There's been all just this horribleness. The walls are now crumpled in. The temple's gone. The sanctuary, right? And and exile. So most of the people are gone. The armies are are slaughtered. And and so the the people of Judah, Lamentations, is that, that response, the crying out to God. And we've seen these are poems made to not just think but to feel, right, like all poems. And, and they're poems of, of lament, and they're poems you might even read at a funeral, right? They, they would often use lamentations for that. And so the, they're acrostic poems, and so that means every line, right, is, is the next letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew language. That's why there's 22 in Lamentations 1, 2, and now 4. Last week it was acrostic, but it was every three lines, so that's why it was 66 verses, and we made it through that, didn't we? And so this one, though, uh, is also acrostic, and it's like the first two but it's interesting in that it's much shorter in words. It's much shorter. And, and so um, it's almost like we've gotten to the point in the lament where the words are growing fewer and the poet is getting more and more tired. Maybe you've experienced that, where grief at first is desperate and the words flood and you cry out to God and, 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 and it's very um, just that meaningful grief but then you, the days pile on, the weeks, even the years, and you're still mourning and still grieving, but now you're just tired. Anyone ever experienced that? You just don't even know what to say anymore. That's not just when you lose someone, right? Like with this pandemic, as Bob just prayed, for patience, because we're tired. I don't even want to talk about it anymore, right? When this is over, what are we going to talk about? But we just, you, you go to pray about it, and you're like, oh, God help. Right? you got two words, because you're tired. And so this almost seems that way, as again he's going to express. As we saw earlier, the tone of, in the first few lamentations, there was almost an accusatory. God, why is this happening? Why is it so hard? This doesn't do it as much. He does describe how terrible it is. Um, and, and the first large section we're about to go through is, is uh, the, where, where the, the poet is saying, this is how it used to be, and this is how it is now. Right, a reversal of everything that was good is now bad. That's the, the lament. But it's not as much accusing anymore, but describing it and basically accepting it. Right? And, and saying, this is, you know, this is what we deserve. And, and it's a, sort of a note of, you'll see sadness and, and exhaustion of, of what's going on. And so, as we, we go through this rather quickly, I want you to see that reversal. How it once was and now how it is. And if you've ever faced loss, and I'm sure you have, you may have had a prayer similar. Maybe not this bad, I hope, but similar. He says, um, begins it, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. You'll notice through this poem, the word street is used 
almost as a symbol of the street you used to have. Festivities and um, people and children playing. And now it's destitute and fear and people dying in the streets. He continues describing this. He says, the precious sons of Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots. The work of potters' hands. The people used to be described as, as jewels, precious jewels. Now they're broken pottery in the, in the streets. He, he uses a really interesting analogy, uh, uh, metaphor here. He says, even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people, in other words, the, mo- the mothers that are left here, right, daughter of my people, have become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. Moms, your mom, you don't want to be compared to an ostrich. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I had to read this. I'm no scientist. So uh, ostriches, uh, moms, are really not really great to their young. They, they leave them as soon as they're born. Um, actually, ostrich dads are a little bit better. So that's uh, interesting to, to read that. So they knew that. They're known for that. And so they're like, you're acting like ostriches. You aren't even caring for your own children. It says the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Right? So the, the, the children are, are starving and no one's helping. He says those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. There's that word. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Purple meant you were wealthy. Precious food like del- delicacies. Right Now you're starving and you have nothing. It's a theme of complete reversal. The, the wealthy and prominent are no longer. He says, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Sodom in the Old Testament is, is the, the model for, you don't want to be that, right? I mean, just sinned, and God just wiped them out, judged and so it was always the Sodom, right? And so what the, the poet is saying is, we're worse off. At least they got it over with. We're languishing in this punishment and God's wrath because of our sin. We're, we're worse off. And in, uh, Jesus would, would someday after this say to Capernaum that you're going to be worse off than Sodom because you have seen me and you have, you, have, you have experienced my miracles and seen my testimony, my teachings, and you've rejected me. That's way worse than Sodom. And so there's this idea that the, more, the closer you are to God's truth, as God's people were in Jerusalem and in Judah, that, that the, the more when they rebelled, it's worse than those in Sodom who didn't even know, that, that they were never even taught the truths of God's word, right? And so the more you have, the more you're responsible for He says, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Anyone's skin feel that way right now, middle of the winter? Just me? My Irish skin, by the time you get to this, I turn into a ghost. And all you see sometimes... If I stand next to a white wall, is my clothes. So that's just kind of how it works for me. So I can kind of relate. But this is way worse because it's due to starvation. Right? They used to be ruddy and healthy and now starving in the streets. Again, the reversal. He says, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. Right? So whenever someone says to you, man, it would have been better off if you just got stabbed by a sword, that means life's not going well. 
right? It's, it's like better off just being dead swiftly than what we're going through. He says, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. You hear that? That's in the Bible. That's probably not something you'll put on a coffee cup, though, right? I hope. They became, if someone ever says, what's your life verse and you say, Lamentations 4.10, we got to talk, all right? That's all I have to say, especially if you're a parent. Um, I understand that you might want to throw your children away sometimes, but you can't boil them. But they were. Like, this is, you know, we can kind of chuckle about it now, but horrific stuff was happening. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And so Deuteronomy 28, actually, when God gave the law to Moses, he warned them, if you rebel, there will come a time, and he actually said mothers would kill and eat their own children. I mean, can you imagine when at that time, they're probably like, oh, that's never going to happen. And we would say the same, and I, I certainly hope we'd never resort to that. But the point is, they were compassionate moms, and now look what they're doing. Sin, God's wrath, mixed with desperation, can cause the human heart to get really black. And that's what was happening here. And so he kind of lands here. He says, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. And so as, as we kind of pause here, what I think the overall point with this descri- description that we can learn is that God's wrath is deserved. This is not a, uh, an easy statement to make in our culture, is it? Why does God let this happen? Why does he do that? Because he's God. You see, we live today, and this is not uh, um, something that, that, you know, that, that we generally will accept as a people, as a culture. I'm not saying necessarily people in this room. What's, what's now is not only do is, is the early chapters that Paul wrote in Romans said was going to happen, right, is that, that the further you run from God, you begin to not just accept sin, but celebrate it and say it's okay, right? And so now, whatever I think I should want in my life, you should be okay with it. But here's my point, is then we look at God and say, and so should you. And God's like, Mm-mm. I've told you in my word what is good and true and right, and what isn't. And that does not change. Just because your culture starts to accept sin does not mean I will. And so it's hard for us to then say, well, wrath, punishment, we make excuses and celebrate. But that's not how God operates. Right? He operates this way, that God's wrath is deserved. Those chapters in, um, in Romans basically said no matter who you are, and he said Jew, Gentile, right, whatever your experience is, you have sin and there is wrath for it. And it's deserved, right? We often think of wrath as something that is out of control. That's not God. It's good and right because he is just and he is holy. And so um, the, the, the idea for me is not pointing the finger at you. It's pointing the finger at me. That the sin in Jamie's life deserves God's wrath and punishment. Deserves it. It's deserved. Lust, greed, gossip. Anger, laziness, uh, not helping people when I should have, right? Helping people with my own agenda, all those things that have riddled my life, like they have yours, right? That God's wrath is deserved. If we do not understand this hard, challenging point, we'll never understand why we need a Savior. We have to understand that God is good, and part of his goodness is his wrath, and his right wrath on sin. 
And so as we, we see this, we're about to see as we continue with this lament, the same theme that God's wrath is deserved, but specifically when we are in positions of leadership, right? But first, uh, verse 12, it's sort of standing on its own a little bit. Um, it says, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem was high on a hill, had fortified walls, and they truly believed that you aren't going to be able to get through uh, the, our walls and get to us. Obviously, Babylon did. And so they trusted in their walls, okay? But that didn't happen. Instead, what did is, is Babylon came to town. And verse 13 says, this was for, why did God do this? This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Okay, so the prophets and priests, the very people who should have known and given to them what was right and good, led by example, taught them truth, showed them the way to God, were doing the exact opposite. They were taking advantage of the people by, by giving false prophecy, by letting them go through ceremonies, collecting money, and even to the point where they shed blood in the temple. Right? It was such corrupt leadership. So what did God do in his wrath? Verse 14 says, They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. And so um, you see this idea, these people who are leaders, supposed to have led them right. Now punished by God, they're treated like lepers. The very priests used to judge lepers, whether they were clean or unclean, are now wandering around and people are saying, get away from us, get away from us. Right? And, and so what, what we can see is God's wrath on leadership. Did you know that every one of us at some point are leaders? All that means is that you have the capacity to uh, help someone or influence someone in a direction. And the question is, which direction do we influence them in? And so you might be a mom or dad, or at this point, a grandfather or grandmother. You have tremendous uh, leadership over those kids in your life. You might be a coach. You might be a teacher. You might be uh, a ministry leader. You might be uh, a leader at work or even aspiring to leadership. God takes leadership seriously. We have to remember that. How we are leading others, whether it's uh, for God or for us, is huge stuff to God. Because he uses you in people's lives. How will you, how will I react to that? That's the question. Here, it was a complete disaster. See, if you, if you um, uh, it, it, whatever capacity God has you, I want you to think about that. Who, who, who are the people that you influence right now in your life? And there's really, I, I've kind of come up with three main ways. First is complete neglect of your leadership. I'm not a leader, right? I don't care. 
I've had, I've had conversations with parents, not usually the ones that are really entrenched in the church, but just other kind of uh, meetings or conversations. And, and it'll come up where they're like, you know what, I just let my kids, they're just going to choose what faith they want. I think it's right that they, they choose. And I'm like, do you let them choose when to go to bed, if they go to school, to eat, whether to eat vegetables? Do you let them choose? Like, oh, no, of course. So interesting. You're leading them in certain ways, but deciding not to lead them in the most important way. Right? And, and, and so we have uh, these young lives in our, uh, in our circle. What are we doing with it? And if we neglect, we just pretend the leadership isn't there, then they'll just choose where they're going to go, and it's really good. The other one is even worse is what we see in the Lamentations, is that we, we uh, impress upon people ways that, that create um, advantages for ourselves. We stomp on the heads of the very people we're supposed to be leading for our own benefit. And God takes that really seriously, as we see in Lamentations. And last, of course, is that we can lead people um, the way God wants us to. That's what we can do. Today in our churches, it's the tug on every leader, pastor, speaker, to build a crowd, not his kingdom. Right? To be applauded by the world. Yeah. Look at how influential he is, she is, right? And the pull is there. I even feel it at times, right? Everyone wants to be successful. Who wants to be unpopular, right? Me, I want to get up and everyone hate me today. No, right? And so the pull is there, right? And so now you'll get churches or pastors, they'll never preach about wrath and sin, right? Because who wants to hear that? We want to hear all the good news. But there is good news, but that's part of it, isn't it? Right? There's a reason why we're going through lamentations. And some of you are like, I've never even read this book. Right? Because it's important, but it's hard. And it's so critical as we lead to, to not be afraid to lead people right, right, towards God. Not away. Because in the end, this is me, you, all of us. In the end, when it's over, whenever that is, we don't stand in front of a group of peers who applaud or boo. We stand in front of Almighty God. And he's going to look and say, Jamie, what have you done with what I've given you and with who I've given you? And do I want to hear the culture say I did well or do I want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. You built my kingdom, not yours. And so what happened in Lamentations still happens today. And so wherever you are in leadership, recognize God has given you those as real important opportunities. And it doesn't mean you're not going to mess up, make mistakes. Of course you are. But what is your heart? What is your head? What, where are you trying to lead these people that are in your lives, at work, at home, in your community, like on your teams, or whatever that is? Where are you trying to lead them? What is your overall point? Do you want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as, as we round towards the end of, of this, we're going to finally see a little bit of hope, not as much as we saw in, in the third lamentation, and, but I'll show you where, where it is. But first we see um, uh, more things that they trusted in for hope rather than God. We've already seen the walls, right? Jerusalem's way up in the hill. Nobody will get through. We've already seen that, and that, that didn't work. Now we see more. Look at verse 17. He says, our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. 
He's talking about Egypt there. Jeremiah 37 describes how they were hopeful as Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar came to the, to the gates. They were putting their trust in Egypt. And if you know the Old Testament, it's ridiculous. Egypt symbolizes away from God. They were in, they were, God had to save them from slavery in Egypt. And, and throughout their, their travels, they would constantly grumble to Moses and say, we want to go back to Egypt. And God's like, stop saying you want to go back to Egypt. I have the promised land. And so Egypt always represents that. Now we have the people saying, Egypt will save us. Jeremiah 37 basically teaches us that, that Egypt kind of came out, started uh, bringing an army towards them, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his army said, oh, excuse me? And they turned, and so the, God's people were like, oh, maybe we'll be saved. And they just did this to Egypt, and Egypt said, yeah, we're good. And they went home and did not save them. Their hope in an army instead of their God did not save them. He says, instead, this is what happened. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the king. And we'll get to that. The king at that time was King Zedekiah. He was captured in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Another thing they trusted in, right? They trusted in the prophets, the priests, the walls, Egypt. And now we see they finally, they trusted in their king. Now, King Zedekiah was a moron. They knew it. He was selfish. And he kind of got them into this mess. But they described him as under his shadow. But really, they're looking at him because he's the Davidic king. He's from the line of David. And what did God promise David? That he would always keep a king on, for eternity on the throne. And so they're like, well, that can't go, right? Because if that goes, then God's promises are gone, right? So they trusted in the king. And you know what happened to Zedekiah is once Babylon came to town, Egypt failed him, he ran. And he got caught in the pit. And Nebuchadnezzar had him, Zedekiah, dragged in shackles, right, in front of him. And they brought each one of Zedekiah's sons and they slaughtered them right in front of his face. And then... They poked out both of his eyes. So the very last image he had was the death of his children. Yikes. Nebuchadnezzar was really good at being really bad. He knew how to do it. So that's the king. That's who he trusted in. Now he's off in prison. He's gone. And now the people are lamenting. And they're saying, how can this be? Like of all the things, the Davidic line, the king, like what are we going to do? Does this mean, right, no more prophet, no more priest, no more king? Does this mean God has completely abandoned us? But you see, they don't know what we know. We know that God had promised and has been fulfilled that someone would come that would be the greatest prophet, greater than Moses, the great high priest, and the king who will reign for eternity from the line of David, and his name is Jesus Christ. God did not abandon his promises, even in his wrath. But they felt that way. They had hoped in all of these things. They hoped in the line of David instead of, in the promise to David, instead of hoping in the God who promised, right? They hoped in the priest and the religion and the the ceremonies instead of the God of those ceremonies, right? And so so I I just want us to to pause, and before we, we look at the hope, is to say we need in 
our box of problems, in our, uh, the wrath, even on our sin. <laughs> Hope in God alone. Hope in God alone. Because, yeah, we look at the limitations and we can judge them for the things they hoped in, but we do the same thing, don't we? Like, what are your Jerusalem walls? Meaning, what are the things that, like, you know what? They're never going to get here. For a lot of us, it's the USA. They'll never get to us. <laughs> Still believe that? I, I, I grew up, I was born in 1975, so most of my childhood was the 80s. Like, to me, there was, whether, whatever you think of Reagan, everybody voted for him. There was no division, except for Massachusetts, of course, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, everybody, right? To me, as a kid, you said politics, it was so boring, right? That's for, like, history class, social studies, something like that. But, but now kids, like, get excited about it. It's like a sport. I got a team, and I hate the other team, right? Because of, so, so it's this, this idea that, that we're not going to let anything in. It's just, it's not real, right? And I, I love it here. I'm just saying, right? We, we trust in a political system or a political party, and we'll never be like those people over there across the world, and that's just not true. Uh, uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem for us can be um, our homes, our communities. It can be our bank accounts. For those of you with big bank accounts, not too many of you out there, but that's okay. You know, uh, whatever you have, you know, say you have uh, $18.2 trillion, whatever that is. <laughs> Just make sure you tithe, all right? Just make sure. <laughs> Even 1%, we'll take it. No. Uh, i got to get back on track here. All right, so $18.2 trillion. Get out your calculator. That's just ridiculous. You could buy the world, right? And you have that, right? And we've said this a lot. That can, that can help for sure, right? There's a lot of things that can help with. But in the end, what will it do for you when you get that call from the doctor, when the police show up at your door, or the person you love says to you, I don't love you anymore? Or when you look at the ramifications of your sin, that trillions of dollars can do nothing. Right? And we think, though, these walls are set up. What are uh, the, the prophets that they had or the priests, the leaders that, that we look to? Like Some people think it is a pastor that's going to save you. I don't think anyone looks to me like that, but please don't. Right? All you got to do is follow me around for a day. You realize that that guy's not saving anybody. All right? Pastor Bob or our elders or other leaders, men and women in our church, great. God put them in, in our lives for a reason, but don't look to any of them to save you, right? They're, right now, especially because of YouTube and, and podcasting and all that, um, especially to young people, motivational speakers are big, and they all swear. I don't really understand that, but that's how it is right now, and because and it makes them, I guess, relate somehow. And, and, and they're saying all this garbage that sounds good, and it's garbage. And, and, and so even in the church, we're like, yeah, that sounds good. And, and it ends up being reverse of what God said, and, and we start to trust in these false prophets, that's not maybe what they're calling themselves, but that's what they are. What about the, the, the Egypts of our life? The, the vain, uh, that's kind of that, that vain, empty promise that we're trusting in to save us. Single people sometimes will say, if I just get married, I will be happy. And all single people said amen, and all married people said? <laughs> Husbands, you better say amen, all right? Your wife's here. No, but we, we know this, and, and I love, I really do. Uh, she's not here. Last night, Heather was here, so I had to say it, all right? But I love being married, and I love my wife. But if I ask her to save me and be my God, that is cruel to her. It's cruel. She can't. I can't for her. My kids can't, right? I, I can't 
Whatever vain, empty things that we think, whether it's our bank accounts, our careers, another degree, if I just have that, and as we say all the time, it will not satisfy us, it will not save us, right? And so we trust in all of these things just like they did. And, and one of the confessions that we'll do in a few minutes is just saying, God, I've been trusting in fill in the blank. And I'm sorry. I want to trust in you alone. You alone. And so as we finish this lament, um, it's, it's really not, I wish, you know, in, in the third, uh, last week, third lament, in the middle was this great, great is thy faithfulness, steadfast love, right? Mercies are new every morning. We don't have that at all here. Um, it, it might look like it when he f- first says here in verse 21, rejoice and be glad. You're like, all right, here's something good, right? Oh, daughter of Edom. He's not talking to his people, the, the people of God. Now he's talking to their enemy, the Edomites. So the Edomites were descendants of Esau. God's people, descendants of Jacob. They were siblings. They hated each other, and, and their people always hated each other. And no, this is no different. In fact, during the Babylonian siege, what the Edomites did is laughed and mocked and helped Babylon. Right? They helped them. And so Babylon actually gave them some of uh, J- Judah's land after it was all over. And so, basically, what, what the poet is saying is, God, I get it. We've sinned. We deserve your wrath. But, man, Edom, I mean, they're worse than us, right? And, and, and what are you going to do about them? But here's what they say. They say, rejoice and be glad, O Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. So rejoice now, Edom. Laugh now. The cup is coming. Now the cup, what is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, this great cup, I'm going to start using this now. It makes me look important. You know, come visit me and say, excuse me. I'm a bit parched, so. I need a gold one, though. Silver's not enough, but. So the cup, I just wanted to get a big one, right? The, the, the cup is, in the Old Testament, it's anything. can be positive. It's usually negative. It's anything you just completely drink down and, and, and get and Every drop, right? And so often in the Old Testament, the cup is judgment and wrath, right? The, the wrath of God. And so that's what it's used here. And so what he's, what, what he's saying is rejoice and be glad now because we're drinking the cup, God's people, of punishment and wrath, right? But you're, it, it's coming. You're going to get your cup, Edom. And it was true. It absolutely would. God did judge Babylon. He did judge Egypt. He, he did judge uh, Edom. Right? But then he finishes this way. He turns back to the, the, the Jerusalem and his people, and he says, the poet says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. Right? Your cup, your the wrath that God has placed on you has been accomplished. That also can translate, it is finished. It is finished. It is every drop has been drank. In other words, God's wrath has been poured out, but he says, For your iniquity, O daughter of he says, he will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. And so he's, he ends with saying, Edom, you're going to get yours, okay? That's not really where we want to end, right? It's God vanquish our enemies, right? But instead, look at what he said to God's people. He said, listen, all of God's wrath has been satisfied. It is finished. It is accomplished. You've drank it all. And now... You can come out of exile, which will happen, right? This is a tense that he used. It's a future reality that's already certain in the present. So this would take some years, but they would come back. And as we're going to see in the fifth lament next weekend, 
they can start to cry out to God for restoration, redemption, forgiveness, help. So once the wrath is finished, restoration comes. So that's how I want us to look at it. Because you see, we aren't in 587 B.C., obviously. We aren't a part of Judah, Jerusalem, exiled in Babylon. And, and so that was a, a local context, right, that's in our Bibles. But the principle that God's wrath to be fully satisfied, I started thinking about that cup. And I started thinking about um, a couple of things in the life of Jesus. First is the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the scene? This is the night he was betrayed, arrested, and the next day he would die on the cross. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. And he talked to the Father. He said, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's, what's he talking about? The cup of wrath, right? And so in that prayer, that desperate prayer in the garden where he's got the droplets of blood in his sweat, it's so stressful because Jesus knows he's willingly going to the cross where he will experience not just physical torment but the full cup of God's wrath right and he's asking can there be another way but if not I will do it and of course he did but really though when you think about it Jesus is saying that I'm going to receive the wrath of God we've already said God's wrath is always deserved Jesus did not sin how's that fair it's fair because that wrath was not for Jesus sin it was for mine and yours. So on that cross, that's exactly what he did. He took our wrath. He drank every drop. Look in with me in the Gospel of John. On the cross, darkness has descended. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He willingly gave himself. Remember that lament, it is accomplished, could also mean it is finished. A different language, but Jesus says, as he drinks the wrath, the, the cup that was deserved for us, as he drinks it, he says, it is finished. It's accomplished. And so now, we can turn to restoration, redemption, and walk in newness of life. You see, every person, every one of us, every person we know, we we have one of two choices because we've all sinned and God's wrath comes and it is deserved. We have one of two choices. Either drink the cup ourselves or let Jesus drink it on the cross. When you put faith in Christ, that's what you're putting faith in. That he took every drop. And God never unfairly, unfairly pours his wrath out twice. Once, either on me for eternity and separation from him or on Jesus on the cross my prayer is that every single one of us will see or has seen in faith Jesus Christ say, it is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. It's over. No more to drink. I did it. And for us to trust fully in him. That's why we need to know that God's wrath is just, is, is just and deserved. So then we can know the Savior who took every. What I want to do is close like we have um, throughout this series. Some of you have been very uncomfortable with this. You'll get used to it. It's okay. Many of you have loved it. I'm going to invite our, our worship team up um, and ask us to just do a little bit of lamenting together. Okay?
And uh, if you've been with us, you kind of know how this works, but just in case you haven't, I'm going to ask for you as they come up just to close your eyes, right? Ken, close your eyes. Try not to go to sleep. It's possible that that's what God wants for you right now. I'm just thankful you haven't slept until now. If somebody next to you is already sleeping, just let them go. It's okay. We'll get them next week. The first um, prayer, I'm going to pray on behalf of all of us corporately. And then I'm going to give you space to personally express your loss to God. Remember that poem we just read? There's a lot of, this is what we've lost. This is what we no longer are. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. So many of us have lost things, especially during this time. Oh, Lord, we've lost people we love. We think of Scott Long's family, lost him suddenly. And the lament, people like Scott, friends that we have, ministry partners, parents, grandparents. We've lost people cry out to you. Father, we've lost jobs. We've lost businesses, homes. Lord, some of us, if we're all going to be honest, there's times, Lord, where all of us have had times where we lose hope. We've lost freedoms that we find precious. Lord, we've lost time with people we care about. We can never get back. We've lost it. We've lost graduation ceremonies, first year of colleges, sports seasons, activities, celebrating holidays with family, and so much more, God. And it hurts. We turn to you and bring our box of problems because of this loss, in Jesus' name. Now take a minute to um, express your loss to God personally, whether it's from now or something deep in the past whatever that might be. It's time just to, just to give it to him. Picture God, whether that's him on his throne or the Lord Jesus sitting by the well and you next to him, however that might be. Picture giving your loss to him.
your eyes closed, and you can keep going with that. I hate interrupting. But we have a time now that is hard. It's a time of confession. We've done this in this series already. That's what we saw in this lament. Recognizing A, we've sinned, and B, God's wrath is deserved. I'm going to start with a prayer of public confession of our people and our culture, and then leave you room for personal time to just express ways you know you've wronged God. It's a beautiful thing to not have excuses, to run from our responsibility, but bowing low to God. Father, we have we confess our sin to you. Thank you. You will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is your promise. Lord, we are part of a culture and we have sinned. We see people taking advantage of others because they're poor or sick, different gender, different race, or just different. We've at times been part of that. Sometimes we, Lord, we've secretly cheered it on. Sometimes we've been the victim. Father, we confess the killing of the unborn in our culture, your children. We own up to the biggest businesses in our country, pornography. It has victims Lord, there's so much anger, and we're part of it. Everyone's spouting opinions, not listening, and certainly not loving our enemies as you taught us. We own up to that today. Your judgment and wrath is deserved. Lord, we've turned to other things to hope in. Bank accounts, careers, people, political parties. We've hoped in those things, and they fail us, Lord. We want to only hope in you. We deserve your judgment, but we together plead for your mercy. In Jesus' name. Take a minute to confess things you've hoped in other than God or sins that are weighing down your box of problems to him.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the freedom of confession. Feel free to keep doing that, but I certainly do not want us to end there. Let's turn our lament to hope, to know that it is finished at the cross of Jesus Christ, the answer to our sin, the answer to our shame. The answer is Jesus. Father, I pray with gratefulness for your new mercies. They're new every morning. For your steadfast love, your hesed, God. You sent your only son to take our just punishment. And on that cross, he declared, it is finished. It is accomplished. Our sin has been fully satisfied. Oh, Lord, I pray you remind your people in this room, me included, that this is true. This is true. And we can take the chains of sin and shame off and walk in newness of life, a son, a daughter of the king. We can have restoration because of Jesus. We have hope that is in you alone. Father, I would ask you, you would remind each individual here of the cross and what happened there. You would also call anyone here who's just never put their trust in what Jesus did, that they would do it this morning. They would cry out to you alone. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Take a minute to either reflect on the cross, picture chains coming off, or for the first time, Confessing Christ, the Savior and Lord, just saying, Jesus, save me. song based on asking for the Lord to come, a prayer that probably many of you have been saying lately a lot. It's a good prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's stand and sing.